Hey everybody, it's John. I wanted to remind you that we do have a Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Over there on Patreon, Mitch and I discuss subjects concerning movies and television and just about anything else we want to talk about. So uh, if you want to come over there, you can subscribe for $2 a month for one episode or $5 a month for every episode at patreon.com forward slash alien minute. Thank you. Hey, Alien Minute listeners, how would you like an extra bit of content from John and Mitch? Say an episode where we talk about things other than Alien, like the movies that we're watching, genres, time periods, all sorts of interesting, different takes on movies. If you want to do that, you can come over and support us at patreon.com forward slash Alien Minute. Pledge us some support to help us out and to get that extra content. We promise you it'll be worth your time. Hello and welcome to the Alien Minute, the daily podcast where we carefully dissect the movie Alien one minute at a time. I'm Mitch Bryan. And I'm John Engel. And today we're talking about minute number 51, which begins with Ripley asking Dallas how he can leave that kind of decision to Ash and ends with the Nostromo lifting off of the planet's surface. And it's a new week and we have a new guest. Uh, Today we have Tasha Robinson, uh, formerly of the AV Club and the Dissolve and presently a film critic for The Verge and co-host of the Next Picture Show podcast. How are you doing today, Tasha? Doing great. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and uh, what you do as far as film criticism and so forth? Well, I mean, I'm kind of a a generalist as a writer who ended up as a film critic almost by accident. Uh, I actually spent the weekend covering the America's Cup boat regatta here in Chicago, uh, much to the surprise of the publicist who looked me up and came back and said, you're a film critic. But, I mean, for the last 20 years or so, I've written, uh, you know, features, like news coverage, um, done a lot of interviews with a lot of uh, really interesting celebrities. I've kind of gotten to talk to most of my idols. Um, But film criticism is just something, like, I've been doing fairly consistently, I guess, because film was just always, like, film and books are my two big interests, and, like, the way that the two of them converge um, and cross over each other has always been a huge interest. I'm actually, one of the things I'm looking forward to talking to you about is uh, the the book version of Alien, which I understand you've talked about a little bit on the podcast so far. Yeah, we've talked about it a little bit, but definitely want to love to hear what you have to say about it, dive into it a little bit deeper as well. Um, you want to tell us about the first time you saw Alien and what kind of effect it had on you? It was in college. It's funny, though. Um, I don't remember the first time I saw Alien nearly as clearly as I remember first seeing the ads. Um, because I'm in my 40s. When the ads first came out on TV, I was a little kid. I was too young to see the movie. I was too young for horror movies, even if my parents like were, had been willing to take me. Um, um, so there was no way I knew, like, watching these ads, I was just eaten up with curiosity about who survived, how they died, what the, what the alien was, what it looked like. And I found the novelization at the library, and I was, I was so excited because I knew I wasn't going to get to see the film probably until I was a grown-up. And at that point, you know, DVDs didn't exist. You You couldn't guarantee that you'd be able to see a movie, like, a little later or when your parents weren't looking 
you know, whatever. It was literally, well, you know, someday if it comes to a revival theater, I might get to see it. So I get to sit down with the novelization and I cannot begin to tell you how many times I read that thing, just scouring it for any hint of information. And Alan Dean Foster, who wrote it, uh, was operating from a, an early script. There are all sorts of things that are not, not in the book that are in the movie and vice versa. But he was really coy about what the alien looked like because there wasn't a description, a clear description in the script that he was given. So <laughs> I read that book so many times because I wanted to be able to visualize the alien. And then when I finally got to see the movie, like I... I I think I saw it first, I was in a toy store somewhere and I saw a puzzle that was just the alien standing there. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. It's not, like, I don't even have an image of it in my head. It's to me, it's just like some sort of uh, mass of tentacles and darkness and, and insectoid chitin. And like, this is a very specific thing. So it kind of lost a little of the luster in my mind. And then I saw the movie and the movie is mysterious enough about the alien that it kind of revitalized all of that, that sense of like dread and wonder that I got watching that original uh, commercial on TV, you know, with the, the, with the egg and the in space, no one can hear you scream tagline. So, you know, for me, the, the book was just <laughs> so important in getting me to my teenage years when I could actually watch this movie. But then like the movie itself actually came along and not, not just filled in the blanks, but like made it all wonderful again. Was there any time in between reading the books and seeing the movie that you saw stills from the from the films or anything like that? No, there was no internet. You know, you couldn't yeah. you couldn't get on like Coming Soon or you couldn't it, like Fangoria was a thing. If I had uh, been at all into trade magazines back then, right. I probably could have gotten a lot of a lot more information. But you know, at, at age eight or whatever I was, uh, I didn't know about any of that stuff. Like there was a whole cinema horror scene that I just was completely not tapped into and it, it didn't occur to me to look like these days your eight-year-old wants to know what the movie looks like and they'll get on a website and uh, probably know you know by now they would know like the alien's first name and his age and where he grew up and I it, like it's hard to imagine people short of like some of the stuff J.J. Abrams did and you know films like Cloverfield and 10 Cloverfield Lane it's hard to imagine going into a movie these days with the sense of like like mystery and curiosity that I went into Alien with did you read other novelizations I'm just curious oh sure yeah. I mean I like I was fascinated with film from a very early age but my my parents weren't big film goers you know so we saw the Disney canon in uh, revival theaters and I mean, I still remember my first R-rated film was Best Little Whorehouse in Texas because my mom loved Dolly, Dolly, Dolly Parton and hadn't really done her research. <laughs> so, you know, we would occasionally go to movies with families, but it really wasn't until college, you know, when I encountered people who owned uh, VCRs and bootlegs that I really started being able to catch up on all of these films that I had so much curiosity about. So I read a lot of novelizations um, just out of curiosity of what the movie was, but there was there was none that I came back to over and over and over the way I did with Alien. There were also photo novels that I remember that would have stills from the movie laid out like cartoon panels with word balloons and stuff. Wow. I mean, I wasn't aware of those. Hmm. I, I remember them from the Disney movies. Like there were, Disney would put out... Um, 
sort of comic book versions of uh, of some of their films, and I remember having a couple of those, but I definitely never saw one for Alien. So when you caught up to the movie in Alien and this and this in college, and the mystery kind of came back, uh, do you remember any other impressions that you had of it? I I'm pretty sure that I watched it. Uh, there was there was one person that we knew at the time that had a, had a VCR and like was bootlegging films um, off like. I think I think he had two VHS players at home and he was copying rental movies and then he was like also taping stuff off TV and this, this definitely wasn't taped off TV <clears throat> or uh, you know it would have had umpty million commercial breaks and uh, been heavily edited um, I'm pretty sure this was you know duped off of VHS but he he would have like 15 people crammed in his room like practically sitting on each other's laps watching movies and like that's how i saw like brazil for the first time that's how i saw monty python uh movies for the first time and it's how i saw alien cramped into a sweaty room with people just piled on each other like all of us sitting there with our mouths gaping open which is a great way to see a horror movie well since we're going to talk about the scene between dallas and ripley this confrontation scene in the corridor I'm curious if when you saw that, having read the novelization, is the is the love affair, the sex and all that between the two of them in the novelization? You know, uh, for all the, the, the fact that I read it over and over, uh, I read it over and over when I was, you know, between like eight and maybe 14 or so. And that is a long time ago. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember that coming across particularly clearly. I remember the book being very just kind of frank and straightforward and I mean of course at that age like anything remotely sexual was like exciting but more alien to me than the alien was so I feel like I would have picked up on it if it was there in any way more than just like a very frank you know and by the way they were having sex but that didn't change the the confrontation in that moment because I know in earlier drafts of the script they definitely had a relationship they made it clear that the two of them were lovers and then that got snipped out. Uh, I don't think any of that got shot, but it was up to the last minute in the script. And so it creates an interesting subtext between the two characters, even though we don't know that about them. At the same time, I think you kind of get that, like, especially in the era, anytime you have a, like a male character and a female character in close quarters, and particularly whenever you have two characters that lock heads the way Ripley and Dallas do, several times during this film I mean it feels like the entire the entirety of like fan fiction slash fiction is about people getting really excited over like any two characters that lock heads and have a tension between them and turning that tension into either into sexual tension or just like blowing it out into it's the entirety of the relationship and I can see people just like watching the two of them face each other down and seeing like an exciting like sexual charge in that even if it was never intended, even if it was never in the script, there's still, there's an energy there. And I think it's just a very natural human thing, like regardless of like the genders of the people that you're looking at or the ages or the species even, to just to look at that kind of like headbutting and see how that could become like erotically charged. Well, I think you can definitely see something in the performances, I think. And I don't know how in how much my knowledge of the earlier drafts of the script informs my reading of their um, performances. But I, I suspect that they were playing this up a little bit. There's something a little bit less businesslike about the way they're speaking to each other here. 
uh, that we haven't seen yet in the movie. So I think that I, I tend to feel that there's, it's definitely there. I'm not sure if it was there for me the very first time I saw the movie, but, uh, I suspect Weaver and Scarrett definitely had it in the back of their in their back pocket when they came into the scene. It certainly helps explain why she like she really does seem to take this like she's taken it professionally up until now. But I feel like this in this minute, it kind of becomes a little personal. And I think it says so much about the character, regardless of whether they're in a relationship or not, that she doesn't say, why did you take his word over mine? Why did you back him over me? Like, she doesn't turn it into a, like, how dare you not respect our relationship. She still keeps it on a professional level. But, you know, she's still betrayed in a pretty personal way. And I'm on her side. I mean, I don't, he doesn't seem to be giving me any good arguments in this, in this situation. Oh, no, he's defaulting to, I was just following orders, which is, you know, the, the lamest excuse possible. Well, and he's, his body language when he's giving these quote-unquote, uh, explanations, uh, answers to her questions. He nods his head in a certain way when he says, you know, explains Ash and how he shipped out with another science officer so many times, and then Ash uh, came in two days before this mission began. He gives this nod, like, and that's that. I don't want to talk about that anymore. And he tends to, he does that a couple of more times in this conversation, and I don't think he's interested in actually having this discussion. She's, he's just interested in shutting her down. I mean, I think he cares about her. I don't think he's as dismissive of her as, say, Ash is. But at this point, I think he's just ready to get off this planet and move on and leave the decisions he doesn't have to make to the people that he can default to. And I think it's part, Tasha, we've been talking a lot about whether or not Dallas is unraveling slowly as the movie progresses. And I think in this scene, we definitely get another hint at that, that Ripley is coming to him with logical, rational ideas, uh, questions, and then concerning the ship's maintenance, she advises that maybe they ought to wait and get everything fixed first, but he's really ready to move on and get off that planet. And I, I don't know, I've had this idea for the last few minutes that maybe she's starting to become sort of the captain of the ship in a way. And uh, do you feel the same way about this? Is, is that an impression you get from this scene? Oh, absolutely. Because she's the one that's, I mean, I, I think she takes control of the ship sort of like nominally morally at the moment she makes the decision to shut Kane out of the ship when he when they come back and he, he's got the face hugger I mean she, that's the point where she basically takes ethical and moral responsibility for potentially killing three people if it's going to save the ship and the rest of the crew and you know nobody backs her play but as the movie unfolds we see over and over that that would have been the right decision kind of like a lot in the minutes that we're going to discuss this week there are so many different, like, really neat moments that are completely underplayed, that they don't come back to later. There's not a whole lot of I told you so in this film. But you see over and over and over ways in which this whole disaster could have been averted. And we've already had one with her, like, trying to not to let them on, on the ship. Now we get another one with her saying, don't trust Ash. And he kind of blows it off. And then we get a third one in this minute where she says, look, we're blind on two decks. We need to get these repairs done before we leave. And he's like, no, no, we're fine. We, can, we don't need those to take off. We should just take off, which does not work out well for them later. Like, I know you, don't, you try not to get outside the minute that you're in, but so many of the minutes we're going to discuss this week are full of foreshadowing and, and branches, you know, decisions that are made that are going to become very, very important. 
I think she also, you feel her leadership here in, she wants to talk about the decision that was made and whether it's possible to take it back. Like she still kind of wants, you know, everything, everything to be like reversed and like, can we just put everybody involved off the ship? Can we put Kane and the alien and maybe Ash off the ship and uh, try to pretend that we're, we're not doomed? And she has to shut a hatch in his face to make him talk to her. You know, that, that is not, he's not being a leader in this moment. A leader would turn around and say, you know, I, I have made this decision. This is why. And stand up to it. And he's just got this like sheepish weariness about the whole thing. When he says the guys shipped out with him two weeks before they left, just the way he says it, you know, he must have had just an inkling at that moment when that happened, that this isn't kosher. And he just, he just wants to follow the rules and do what the company says. Yeah, I mean, he it's it's almost possible that he protested that when it happened and it didn't get him anywhere and he's already been forced to make a decision that he didn't want to make and now he doesn't he doesn't want to justify it to her because justifying it to her is him explaining how he's already failed as a leader. All in the subtext. I mean, it's 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 so much of this movie is understated. And yet it's so rich. I guess that's why it's so much fun to return to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's just, there's so much, there's so much practicality in the way the script is written. And you, it really does take kind of going back and rewatching it to see a lot of the, what the performances are doing and in scenes like this and what the dialogue are doing. It's, it would be so easy, like watching the film for the first time to just blink completely past this moment as, you know, Ripley's just like, I don't like this. And he's like, well, whatever. And that's, and that's it. You really have to go back, you know, in a setting like this where you can look at something really closely, like to realize just how much is going on here between the two of them. Well, there's another thing I wanted to talk about in this minute, um, as far as how the script is building us up to our reveal of Ash later. Ash has been presented as kind of an asshole. He's very dismissive of Ripley. He maybe makes the decisions that we don't favor, but it could be argued that he is doing his job and maybe he has been behaving more human in some ways uh, with the decision to let Kane on board, for instance. But I think this is the first time where they're directly questioning whether we should trust him, like flat out saying it in the text of the dialogue, where Ripley asked Dallas if she says she doesn't trust him. We know that already. Dallas certainly does not say he does trust him. He, as a good cat, and he tries not to be too specific, but he, by saying, I don't trust anybody, he's agreeing with her. And now as the audience, we have to settle into the fact he is completely untrustworthy. There's no way. We're now so much on Ripley's side that I think now we're finally where we know for sure that Ash can't be trusted. And that informs what goes on in the in future minutes. Are we on Ripley's side here, though? I mean, like we've seen her do something that might be the safe decision, but is, is very, very cold and very by the book. I mean, she has her, I'm just following orders moment. And it, it could have resulted in the death of three people, which as we find out later would have you know been a net gain. But it feels to me like what she's doing here could just as easily be taken as, you know, her nagging him, you know, like I didn't get my way and I'm mad and I'm therefore I'm mad at you for making it happen, and I'm mad at the guy who did it. So I'm trying to undermine him. Like it could, it's so easy to read it that way if you 
haven't already seen the movie, if you don't know what she's going to become, she kind of comes across as like a little nagging and shrill in this moment. And it's what he tells her about Ash that kind of starts to shift your thinking to, oh, wait, like she's not just being, she's not just sulking because she was countermanded. Like there's something wrong with this guy. Well, I think to me, I feel like I'm on her side just now. It's actually something that we talked about in the last minute. This is the third time Ash has made a decision about that alien. And at this point, I think that it's safe to assume that that thing's dangerous. And she's right. Get it off the ship. Uh, at that point, I'm, I'm in full agreement. This, we talked a lot about the acid blood and the decision and her uh, pausing the idea that maybe in this decomposition stage, it's going to do something much worse than you can imagine to the ship. That's the point where I'm on board. And then, the fact that Dallas, this moment of betrayal that she's feeling that we were talking about earlier, I think that's where I'm finally latched onto her. So to me, personally, I'm on her side right here. But you're right. Up to this point, it's been a lot more ambiguous. I also think it's just neat. Like, I feel like an awful lot of what's written about Ripley as like this great feminist icon is people like visualizing her as we know her in Aliens, you know, as like kick-ass danger mom. Uh, you know, who swears and operates uh, heavy loaders and whatnot. I don't know that she gets enough credit for, like, the much quieter, like, and much more defining confidence that she shows in this movie, and particularly in this minute, where she knows she's right and she's not willing to back down. Like, even though she's been overruled by these, you know, two men who, one of whom outranks her as the captain and one of whom outranks her situationally with uh with the science situation she still knows that she's following protocol and that she's doing the safe thing and she she doesn't back down you know she knows that her it's not just her opinion and that she's not just like doing she's not going along to get along and she she absolutely refuses to back down and there's so many like little moments with her in this movie that well starting with her refusing to let them back in that are like this that are just about having the confidence to speak your mind and assume that what you have to say is as important as as what a man has to say, even if that man outranks you. I think that this moment here is about as feminist a moment as we get from her in, in this movie. Well, from that, we move into the ship taking off, uh, and we'll probably just skip ahead to the next minute to really get into what's being done there because we simply go to one shot of the ship blasting off no more discussion they're 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 leaving dallas has definitely gotten his way and unless you have anything else we can uh go on to the next minute get out of this one i guess the only thing uh the only other thing i want to say is uh, like the the very first couple of seconds of this minute where dallas is framed against the white door that she's dropped in front of him and like everything else around him is black. It's, it's such a beautifully framed shot. It just, it gets me every time, like his dark hair against the whiteness of the door and the way he's just, he's outlined by the door that and the, like the lighting in the scene is so much fun. I mean, by this time in this movie, we've like, we've completely normalized like spooky partial lighting and the, like the bright lights on somebody's face and the other side in shadow because the interior of the Nostromo is just, <laughs> it's just hell as far as lighting is concerned. It's like somebody designed it to make people look as like eerie and spooky and, and partially human as possible. 
but throughout this entire conversation, like the first time through, I was really distracted from what they were saying by just like looking at the play of lights on their face. Uh, all right. Well, that'll do it for minute number 51. Uh, tune in tomorrow for minute number 52. Tasha, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson, and you can find me at the Next Picture Show podcast, um, which you can find at Next Picture Show on Facebook, Tumblr, uh, Next Picture Pod on Twitter. And we want to give our weekly shout out to the Star Wars Minute podcast uh, for loaning us out this this format. Um, thanks again, guys and listeners. If you've never heard the Star Wars Minute, you should definitely start now. Uh, you can find our podcast at AlienMinute.com or go to iTunes and subscribe. Uh, you can do that also on Stitcher or Google Play. And you can follow us at Alien Minute Pod on Twitter. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow for minute number 52.